Good afternoon. Uh, my name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. And I'd like to welcome you to our book forum today uh, for the book, <clears throat> Wounds That Will Not Heal, Affirmative Action and Our Continuing Racial Divide by Russell K. Neely. Uh, what we're going to do today, as we do every time with a book forum, is hear first of all from our author about the nature of the book, what led him to write it, the content, and then turning to a commentator uh, on the, the issues raised by the book. And then finally, of course, to a question and action a answer session in which you, the audience, can participate, ask the author uh, what uh, you would like to about the book, and also, of course, there's always an opportunity to buy the book. And afterwards, when we have lunch, you'll be able to uh, interact with the author and continue co uh, conversations we hopefully begin here uh, in uh, the, uh, the actual book forum. So therefore, at about 1.30 or so, we expect to, to leave off with this and go up and have lunch, uh, and which are always and often uh, at least uh, as rewarding as any other part of a book forum here at Cato. Now, our topic today, of course, is one of the most controversial uh, of my lifetime of our, or of our author's lifetime. Uh, it is an issue that has been uh, at the forefront of politics at various times. It certainly has been at the forefront of the Supreme Courts and the judicial agenda at various times uh, in the last 30 to 40 years. And indeed, we are at one of those times right now in which the court itself is expected in the probably next year to rule on a major affirmative action case. When I was working on my uh, second book, The Struggle to Limit Government, I studied the uh, 1960s extensively and came across uh, something I did not know and I found very interesting uh, from that period, the first uh, and uh, full Johnson term. As you may recall, at the time of the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, there was extensive discussion about the nature of the requirements of the act. And those who were proponents of the act were very keen to say that the act itself would not require any kind of hiring uh, on racial grounds. There was a large debate about that. And uh, one, uh, Senator Humphrey himself, uh, of course a famous proponent of the act and of civil rights was heard to say that if quotas came out of the act, he would be willing, to, I believe, to eat his hat. Um, about uh, three years into the act, in the implementation phase, the Johnson administration did not propose quotas, but they proposed the beginning of what would be called later the Philadelphia Plan. But it was a, uh, a set of, a plan to cover procurement and hiring by the federal government that would propose not quotas, but goals. And those goals were taken not to be quotas. However, the US Comptroller of the General, a man named Elmer Statz, um, <clears throat> ultimately ruled that, uh, and in some sense followed parts of congressional intent, that the goal-based plan was illegal and would not be enforced by the federal government, the administrative side of it. So in some sense, there began, even in the first three to four years, the national debate that would continue for the next 30 to 40 years down to our conference today and the, the dis decisions before the court uh, that are to be made. In some sense, I've often thought of this as the critics of affirmative action uh, raise the question, how could you? 
That is, how could you, after all of this period of status and racial subordination, how could you try to create a society? And, and all the claims for racial equality, a society in which the, the policies were uh, essentially based on racial distinctions. On the other hand, the proponents of the policy raised the question, how can we not? That is to say, after two to three, a couple hundred years of slavery and uh, more than a century of failure to deal with the aftermath of slavery, how can we not do something that, while on its face may seem uh, like a bad idea, nonetheless responds to those, that history and uh, the, the problems caused by the society for, by it? I think it's fair to say that that debate is not resolved, not reconciled, but the, pro the programs and policies in some sense have become entrenched and perhaps the sides of the debate have become entrenched. Russ Neely's book interested me because it seemed like an attempt to deal with the claims of both sides of this debate in a fair way and to propose a new and interesting way of thinking about what the society should be doing. So Russ Neely uh, did his undergraduate work at Duke during the late 1960s. After graduating from Duke, he studied at Columbia and then entered Princeton's politics department, where he focused on the study of political theory, religion, and American government. He received his PhD from Princeton in 1979, studied later at Yale's religion department. He is currently a senior preceptor in Princeton University's James Madison program in American Ideals and Institutions, as well as a lecturer in Princeton's political uh, pol politics department. He wrote a pathbreaking book on the Austrian-English philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, and has published numerous articles in learned journals on a variety of public policy issues. I should say he has published extensively on the topic uh, of our, today's book. Much of his published book uh, work in recent years focuses on these issues of race, uh, which he approaches from the perspective of classical liberalism and a God-focused humanism. Russ, welcome to the Cato Institute. Well, thank you uh, very much, John. Uh, Russ, you, you, you want me to speak up here? Yes. Okay. Uh, Sorry. Uh, as John uh, suggested, uh, the policies that came to be called affirmative action uh, first came into existence uh, in the very early 1970s with the, the Nixon uh, administration. And he mentioned the Philadelphia Plan, which was uh, initially uh, a plan to open up the construction uh, industry uh, to uh, blacks. Craft unions uh, traditionally had been sort of father and son, uh, uncle and nephew kind of affairs. and. Um, it was, in many ways, uh, the exception and not the rule insofar it was an attempt to, uh, to, to, to focus on what William Julius Wilson would later call the truly disadvantaged, uh, particularly the inner city uh, black uh, unemployed. Uh, it became the exception because uh, racial preference policy, which I think is a more accurate term than uh, affirmative action, uh, essentially became primarily, certainly in uh, university admissions, the, the, the province of the, the, the middle uh, class and uh, even uh, upper middle class. If you go to uh, any elite university, uh, you go to Georgetown, uh, look at Princeton, uh, look at Harvard, you look at the black and Latino students there, 
who are targets of affirmative action programs, you will see the vast majority of them come from relatively well-off backgrounds. They're not uh, the, uh, the, truly, the truly disadvantaged. And in my book, uh, I have six chapters. The last chapter doesn't deal specifically with racial preference policy. It deals with the growth of an inner city, downwardly mobile uh, black underclass. And one of the uh, arguments that are made against racial preference policies and that I've made is that the policies distract from the real, uh, uh, the real disadvantage, the real uh, problems, uh, and uh, it, to the extent that they uh, are, are beneficial to anyone, and I would sometimes uh, deny that they are, but to the extent that they are, they are clearly a, a, a benefit to people who least, uh, least uh, need them. Uh, let me just go over uh, some, of the, uh, uh, some of the arguments that uh, are made uh, in favor of racial preference policy, and let me, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, problems, the, the arguments that are made in favor and why I don't uh, agree, uh, agree uh, with them. And uh, I want you to uh, keep in mind, however, that we shouldn't lose sight of what was the initial motivation for moving away from the colorblind ideal, which had motivated the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s to the color-conscious policies of racial preferences. And that was the continuing plight of the truly disadvantaged African Americans in our inner uh, cities. This was what was uppermost, I think, in the minds of most people who supported racial preference policies. They, uh, this problem is one still that's uppermost in the minds of people who continue to support racial preference policies without realizing that the policies have been essentially hijacked by uh, black and Latino uh, middle class uh, members. Very, very few uh, people who would be considered uh, truly uh, poor or disadvantaged uh, wind up uh, getting uh, boosts to elite universities. And the same goes for racial preference policies in, uh, in employment. It tends to be the better off who benefit from those policies and qualify uh, for the uh, special treatment. And uh, it, we lost sight, I think, of the real continuing uh, problem. There's been sort of a civil rights fatigue, some speak of. And we've lost sight of, uh, I think, some of the, uh, the, the uh, people who are uh, most in need of a public policy focus. But let me take up a, a couple of um, the things that people who take the opposite view that I do and why I disagree with them. Uh, first of all, there's a question of diversity. Uh, it wasn't really until the Bakke decision that people supporting racial preference policies started to talk about the importance of diversity or use that as a major rationale. Before that time, before the Bakke decision in the late 70s, people who supported racial preferences generally uh, used one of two rationales. Either uh, they use the compensatory justice rationale saying that, well, uh, there have been people in the United States who have been uh, terribly exploited, uh, particularly African Americans, uh, to somewhat lesser uh, extent uh, Mexican Americans and other uh, Latinos, and they need some, uh, or, or, or uh, they, they deserve some kind of compensatory boost for the past uh, harms that have been inflicted upon them by American society. That, that was the major uh, uh, rationale for moving away from the color-conscious ideals 
uh, of the 1964 Civil Rights Act when Hubert Humphrey said, uh, you know, he would eat this act if uh, racial preferences were ever uh, read into the act. Um, and it came as a result primarily of the urban rioting of the late 1960s. Policy planners in Washington here, in the Department of Health and Education and Welfare, in the Department of Labor, and in the elite universities, elite law schools said something more has to be done uh, than colorblindness and uh, equal opportunity. We have to have some uh, boost. We have to jumpstart uh, and, and get a large uh, black middle class uh, uh, in, in uh, place so that we won't have people rioting in the streets. That was the main thinking, I think, in po of policy planners in the late uh, 60s and early 70s who uh, instituted uh, the, the system that we today call uh, affirmative action. Um, the other thing was is it was related to that, which is the idea of social justice, or just sort of compensatory justice uh, and uh, social needs. Compensatory justice and social needs were sort of the two uh, in intertwined rationale for moving away from <coughs> Justice Harlan's famous claim that the Constitution is colorblind to a view that the Constitution can be color conscious uh, as long as the group that's being benefited is one that had previously uh, been uh, harmed or discriminated against. With the Bakke decision, uh, the, the, the rationale uh, changed. And it changed because Justice, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the lead uh, uh, the, the, uh, court uh, justice uh, making uh, the final uh, uh, decision uh, said that um, compensatory justice rationales cannot override uh, the constitutional imperative of equal protection. And uh, he, uh, uh, Lewis Powell uh, is the person, of course, here. And Powell said that uh, while compensatory justice uh, and social needs arguments uh, cannot override the constitutional imperative of colorblind justice, uh, nevertheless, universities at least have an interest uh, in, in, in academic uh, freedom and in creating a diverse uh, environment where people of different uh, viewpoints uh, can uh, share their different viewpoints. And so he believed it would be constitutionally permissible for universities uh, to uh, grant some level of uh, racial uh, or uh, ethnic uh, preferences as, as, as a plus factor uh, in university admissions. And so diversity enhancement became, after the Bakke decision, the main way in which uh, universities justified uh, their programs. Even though, really, if you look into them, they're not thinking so much of diversity enhancement uh, as in compensatory justice uh, and social needs. It's the compensatory justice and social needs uh, as, as, as understood by university administrators that's uppermost uh, in, in, uh, in their minds. But for constitutional reasons, they have to uh, shoehorn uh, their uh, policies into the rationale of diversity enhancement. Okay, let's go over the diversity enhancement uh, 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 argument that they make. Um, the, the, the problem uh, is, uh, is, is, is multidimensional uh, here. First of all, on its own terms, the diversity enhancement rationale doesn't make much sense because of the fact that one school's diversity gain is almost always purchased at another school's diversity loss. And let, let me explain uh, how it works here, at least with undergraduate uh, admissions. 
Imagine that we took all of the universities and colleges in the United States and, you know, we looked in the Barron's book or other books uh, that uh, rate universities in terms of how selective they are, and we put them into eight categories, okay? Tier one, tier two, tier three, so, so on, down to tier eight, with the tier ones being uh, the most elite, let's call them the 750 schools because they average about 750 on the SATs, and the tier twos are 700 schools, and the tier threes are 650 schools, down to your tier eight schools, your 400 schools, which are essentially uh, non-competitive. What racial preference policies do is upwardly ratchet their beneficiaries into one or two uh, into schools one or two levels of selectivity above where they would have gotten into had there been no special boost. So um, if you're white or Asian and you have 500s on your SATs, you're likely to get into a school where the other students uh, have 500 uh, uh, SATs. If you're black or Latino, there's a good chance you're going to be upwardly ratcheted into a school where the, the students have 600. They're going to be uh, one or two tiers uh, above. Instead of getting into a tier uh, four school, you'll wind up in a tier three or a tier two school. Instead of a tier three school, you'll wind up in a tier two school. Instead of a tier two school, you'll wind up in the upper elite uh, tier one school. So you have this sort of zero-sum problem, or uh, what some call the downward cascading problem. I call it downward parasitism problem. Your tier one schools take students, black and Latino students, who in the absence of preferences would be in tier two schools. Your tier two schools take students who in the absence of preferences would be in tier three schools, and so on. It only goes down about as far as the tier four schools, uh, because um, a lot of schools essentially are do not have very uh, strict uh, entrance uh, requirements. And uh, at, at the lower end, which actually constitutes a majority of schools, uh, they, they accept pretty much uh, all comers. Uh, but the upper schools, there's certainly uh, a great deal of racial plus factoring that's used. Okay, so on its own terms, the diversity enhancement argument it, it comes into problems because uh, there's... Uh, a, a loss of diversity at the school uh, uh, when a, an upper-tier school takes uh, a student who, in the absence of the preference, wouldn't be going to the lower-tier school. But you can't take the diversity enhancement rationale on its own terms because you have the problem uh, which has been uh, addressed again and again by critics of racial preference policy, particularly black critics. The black critics have been, I think, most eloquent and in, 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 uh, impassioned in uh, saying this. Um, that when you upwardly ratchet members of an identifiable uh, ethnic or racial uh, group, particularly one that's visibly uh, identifiable as uh, African Americans would, would be, um, there's a problem of stigma and stigma rein, uh, reinforcement. The current problem of racial preferences involving this upward ratcheting logic that I've just described has the effect of putting uh, black students and to a lesser extent Latino students on college campuses where it's guaranteed, it's guaranteed in the very logic of upward ratcheting that the typical white or Asian student uh, will be better qualified, will uh, be academically uh, more uh, advanced or academically more talented. And this can't possibly, can't possibly uh, uh, not have the effect of reinforcing negative stigmas and negative stereotypes about the academic competence of the upwardly ratcheted students, of the black and Hispanic students. 
I sometimes give this uh, uh, thought experiment. Imagine that for whatever reason, colleges and universities throughout the country wanted to increase the number of short women on their, their campuses. And as a result, the elite, all the elite universities made being female and short, let's say we define short as five foot two inches tall and shorter, they added essentially 100 points to your SAT averages. So if you average 500, they made it as if you averaged 600. If you uh, had a, a grade point average uh, of 3.0 in, in high school, they boosted it by 0.4. So you got a 3.4. If you had a 3.4, they gave you a 3.8. Imagine what that would be like on the college campuses now. If you have now, you go and you see, ah, you see a little short women, and you're going to say, one of those dumb shorties, you know, you know, can't make it on their own. Very much, in fact, exactly the kind of thinking that occurs with recruited athletes. Many of the, in fact, all of the elite universities, with the exception of the California Institute of Technology and MIT and the University of Chicago, uh, recruit athletes. And they will often reach way down for the recruited athletes. Uh, and so what, what, what happens? Well, the recruited athletes uh, uh, have uh, developed uh, uh, an image in the mind uh, uh, not only of the non-athletes, but the athletes themselves of being uh, less academically uh, competent than the other students who have had to make it under a much uh, tougher academic standard. And so you have in the vernacular the idea of the dumb jock. Uh, just as in the uh, example I gave with the short women, you'd have the dumb shorties. Uh, if, if, if it's a system that guarantees that the people who uh, have been uh, specially uh, admitted are on average less uh, academically capable than other students. There's just no way that you are going to prevent people, all people, not just uh, people uh, who, uh, not just the whites and Asians, but uh, the Latinos and blacks as well on competitive campuses from being thought of uh, as, uh, uh, as intellectually inferior to the others. Now, that analogy that I gave with the short women actually doesn't even tell the half of the, the problem because short women have never had an image in America or elsewhere for being less academically competent or less intelligent uh, than average size women or tall women. But when you get to uh, blacks, to a lesser extent with Latinos, there is a, an image with deep cultural resonance that they are less academically competent, less intelligent uh, than, than whites uh, or whites and Asians. So here you're creating a system that reinforces in the most powerful way the most harmful negative stigmas and negative stereotypes. And I've often brought up the argument here that I'm making, the stereotype reinforcement argument. Uh, to audiences where there's a great deal of sympathy for racial preferences and to panelists who are sympathetic, and they have virtually no response. They have to agree, yeah, yeah, you know, how, how, could, how, could, it be, uh, how could it be otherwise? Uh, and clearly this is a, a, a harm uh, to a policy. Five minutes, okay. Let me take up a couple of the other. I'm not going to. Sometimes when I've given a talks, and particularly in debate formats, I, I, I say, here, I'm going to give you 10 really good reasons why racial preference policies and university admissions are a really bad idea. Uh, I'll just give maybe one or two more here. Certainly, the, the stigma reinforcement problem uh, is, is, is one um, that I think is, uh, is, is, is paramount uh, uh, here. But there, there, there are others. The work disincentive 
issue here. John McWhorter, who uh, is now working with the Manhattan Institute, he taught for many years out at Berkeley, he's a, a, a black linguist, uh, said that uh, when he was in a, a private uh, school in Philadelphia, that he knew from the time he was 10 years old that there was this thing called affirmative action that made it a whole lot easier uh, for black people like himself to get into good schools. And he said, as a result, I didn't work very hard uh, or I didn't work as hard as I would, uh, would have had I not uh, uh, known that I was going to get this preference. This uh, preference. So you have the problem with uh, uh, disincentive. Now, it's true, some people may respond to knowing they're going to get a boost, they might work harder. Um, but I, most teenagers in America, that's not how they're going to, unless they get a lot of uh, great pressure from home, unless they get, you know, or they have a peer groups, like some of the Asian peer groups, where they get a lot of pressure from the peer groups. What we know about African-American peer groups and African and Latino peer groups, they're not like that. They do not put great pressure. Uh, and uh, the same thing holds with uh, what we know about uh, the uh, family. Some of you may have uh, seen, you got a lot of publicity several years ago, uh, Lauren Steinberg's uh, uh, from Temple study of uh, 10,000 students in Wisconsin and, and California, and he asked them, uh, what's the lowest grade you could go home with before your parents got mad? And uh, the average among the black and Latinos was C minus. Uh, the whites, it was B minus. The Asians, it was A minus. So uh, clearly, there are different peer group and family <laughs> pressures uh, uh, here. Um, you have the question here of, of racial hostility. Uh, poll after poll shows overwhelming uh, opposition to racial preferences, certainly among Asians and whites. The 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 uh, polling data is more mixed on uh, Latinos and blacks. Some. Uh, show majority uh, supporting racial preference, others not. It's it's pretty it, it's pretty mixed. I would uh, I would say uh, here, there's a mismatch problem, which there's a, another book that's come out uh, uh, not so long ago, uh, <laughs> about two months ago by uh, Rick Sander of uh, uh, UCLA, uh, showing that. Uh, placings, particularly in the case of science majors, people who intend to major in science, and people in law school, there's not a good strategy pedagogically to be in a university where you're over your head, where everybody uh, you know is more advanced than you are uh, in terms of uh, their intellectual development. You often, uh, the, the instruction is often uh, too advanced for your individual needs. Uh, and this was Tom Sowell, who I've learned so much from. If, you, if people haven't read Sowell, you must read Tom Sowell. He's one of the, in my judgment, uh, he's one of the most uh, creative intellects over the last 40 years, at least uh, people I, I have read. And he, he found this out when he was teaching at Cornell. So many students at Cornell were failing. He said when they would be just great students at middle-level schools, but Cornell, you put them into the hothouse intellectual environment of Cornell, he says, and, and uh, they're mismatched. Yeah, Sowell was the one who coined the phrase mismatch. Let me just leave you a very, very simple thing. Why do we call racial preference policies by a euphemism like affirmative action or diversity? Uh, during, at the end of both world wars, there were bills that were introduced in Congress. They were called veterans preference bills. And they passed without any opposition at all. And they gave preference to veterans in government employment. The thinking was, well, these people, they've served uh, in the, the military and they defend their country. And it's, you know, we often give people uh, special consideration for seniority. It's as if they had already worked for the government. There was no opposition at all, and they were called by their right name, veterans' preference bills. But how popular would a bill be in Congress, uh, underrepresented minorities' preference bill, uh, or minorities' first act? 
the answer, of course, is, is, is it wouldn't be popular at all. And it wouldn't be popular not only because of the fact that non-minorities would oppose it, but there's this question of insult to the beneficiaries, this stigma, the stigma and insult. It's like saying that, well, you can't make it uh, you know, unless you get a, a boost of some kind. And um, I think that this tells, we can just, the fact that racial preference policies have to be referred to by supporters through an elaborate system of euphemisms and prettifying obfuscations tells us something about both their lack of public support as well as the fact that they are perceived, if they are spoken of with, uh, with, as, uh, in, in terms that uh, don't, uh, don't use euphemisms, they tend to be insulting to those who they are intended to help. All right, thank you. Uh, as a person uh, born and brought up in uh, Kentucky, I can't help but uh, recall when John mentioned, uh, when Russ mentioned John Marshall Harlan, that while most Americans today uh, certainly would not have not much reason for pride in reading the Supreme Court decisions in the civil rights cases of 1883 or the Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896, uh, Kentuckians do. Um, Walter Olson will be our commentator today. Wally is a senior fellow at Cato Institute's Center for Constitutional Studies. Prior to joining Cato, uh, Olson was senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and has been a columnist for Great Britain's Times Online as well as Reason. His writing appears regularly in such publications as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the New York Post. He's appeared numerous times before Congress and advised many public officials the Washington Post has dubbed him the intellectual guru of tort reform. His approximately 400 broadcast appearances include all the major networks, CNN, Fox News, PBS, NPR, and Oprah. Perhaps Wally will tell us today what Oprah is really like. Um, Wally's most recent book, Schools for Misrule, Legal Academia, and an Overlawyer uh, in America, appeared in 2011 to general acclaim, is my understanding. Uh, and certainly uh, a book that Cato was very proud to be associated with. He's also published previous books, um, uh, The Rule of Lawyers, and his first book, The Litigation Explosion, was cited by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in a major Supreme Court case. On the web, he has founded and continues to run overlawyer.com, widely cited as the oldest blog on law, as well as one of, <coughs> excuse me, one of the most popular. And I have to say, I was delighted when uh, Wally agreed to comment today. Uh, in many conversations with him, I've always come away more wiser. And I have to say, I'm beginning to think that actually Wally probably is wise. So he's the ideal person to comment today. Wally? Thank you, John. I will try to live up to that. Can you all hear me well enough? Okay. <clears throat> My favorite bit of applied sociology from uh, Russell Neely's book uh, <clears throat> takes the form of a quotation from the Princeton Review, and I should <clears throat> start by saying that, that, the, yes, that the Princeton Review has nothing whatsoever to do with the administration of Princeton U University. And I take my hat off to uh, <clears throat> Professor Neely because in the course of doing this book, he read thousands and thousands of pages of the writings of university presidents and university administrations. I could never, ever have done that. Um, <clears throat> but he has suffered so that we could get 
<laughs> the distillation of that. But the Princeton Review is an entirely different kettle of fish because it is aimed at students uh, who are uh, trying to decide which university to apply to or how to cram to get uh, into a better university. And thus it has an incentive to speak all sorts of unpleasant truths that the university presidents and the university administrators go to such extraordinary lengths to conceal. So let me quote from the Princeton Review Student Advantage Guide to College Admissions. Uh, they point out many Asian students have been extraordinarily successful academically to the point where some colleges now worry that there are too many of these students on their campuses. Being an Asian can now actually be a distinct disadvantage in the admissions processes at some of the most selective schools in the country. I don't think that surprises any of us, but their advice is as follows. Uh, if you're an Asian, pay attention to the following guidelines. If you're given an option, don't attach a photograph to your application and don't answer the optional question about your ethnic background. This is especially important, they go on to say, if you, you don't have an Asian-sounding surname. By the, by the same token, if you do have an Asian-sounding surname, but aren't Asian, do attach a photograph. <laughs> now that, that tells us so much more than the, you know, with all due respect to Derek Bach, it tells us so much more than the collected works of Derek Bach um, explaining the case for affirmative action. And it got me to thinking, you know, about Northern Virginia. If you are someone fortunate enough to be surnamed Lee and you live in Northern Virginia, you know, you're probably one of two groups. Either the 15,000 white and black people who descend from the uh, historically extraordinarily distinguished Robert E. Lee and allied branches, or, or also one of the 15,000 uh, Asian immigrants in Allendale and other places. And it is totally different advice. I hope the photographers know when one of the different Lees walks in uh, which set of advice to give them. You actually don't want my services today if you are uh, not one of the Robert E. Lees. Anyway, <clears throat> this is not a debate format. And like most people at Cato, I believe that the uh, for moral and for legal reasons, that public educational institutions must not discriminate by race, which means that on the bottom line of policy, there isn't too much for us to debate. And yet, there are differences in approach. There are differences in um, the uh, types of arguments that we are persuaded by. And uh, I'd like to concentrate, since more conflict and more tension means better commenting, I'd like to concentrate on a couple of them where uh, <coughs> I either differ from uh, Mr. Neely or at least are, uh, am, am much less certain than I used to be about some of the issues. The first point I would start with is that this is an issue that hardly ever seems to change. Forty years ago, if you walked away from it uh, and uh, returned to take another look at it now, almost all of the same pieces would be in the same squares on the chessboard. Uh, yes, there were a couple of things that changed in the meantime. The courts uh, <clears throat> moved the line a little bit, and the voters of uh, California and Michigan approved uh, initiatives. But uh, back then, as now, the polls were overwhelmingly opposed uh, and even uh, rather equivocal um, among black respondents. Uh, and back then, just as now, it was overwhelmingly practiced by all the elite institutions and overwhelmingly backed by the establishment to the point where it's almost the definition of being in the establishment as is, is having this point of view. And the voter initiatives kind of prove the, the rule because what greater source of chaos and unpredictability is there in American politics than voter initiatives? It wasn't intellectuals by and large who did that. It wasn't the types of debates that we have in places like this. It was unpredictable uh, petitioner and voter behavior. So why has it persisted for 40 years with so little change and what should that tell us? Well, 
Shelby Steele has the theory, which uh, is quoted in, in this book, uh, that it's persisted because it has made uh, uh, high-status uh, whites feel good about themselves. And I doubt it. I really doubt, especially if it is as costly as both sides seem to agree. And one of the interesting things about the Derek Bach literature is that it does not shy away from the fact that there are real costs. Uh, are we actually undergoing all of these costs just in order to make uh, high-status whites feel good about themselves? I kind of doubt it. And thinking back to that period, the one thing that we know about the early 70s and the late 60s was that race relations in America were really, really, really terrible. Uh, many of you in this room are too young to realize how bad they were. Uh, but visions of an American future, uh, very, very unpleasant visions, loomed to poor people. It was the urban riots. It was the occupation of uh, university administration buildings. It was much, much more than that. And whatever else university presidents may be, they tend to be drawn from a self-conscious ruling class, so I would argue at least. And ruling classes do often think of these terms of social cohesion. Uh, down the principle, what do we need to do in order to keep society from flying apart? Uh, I would argue, were I to write a book, that that is why uh, they adopted it in the first place, and that is why it has been so peculiarly persistent over 40 years. Uh, it is something that I can only call well-intentioned because I don't want society to fly apart either. Now, the interesting thing is that not just the liberal side predicted uh, it, polarization and racial uh, uh, tension if it did not get its policies through. But the critics of affirmative action have for 40 years been predicting exactly the same thing. Um, to quote uh, the uh, wounds that will not heal, uh, the <coughs> supporters of, of, of racial preference, uh, writes Professor Neely, underestimate, quote, the depth and intensity of opposition to racial preference policies. And sure enough, if you look at the polls, you can see some of that depth and intensity. You know, People believe rather strongly, uh, and by majorities, that racial preference is wrong. His title is ambiguous. There are some wonderful pages in Wounds That Will Not Heal about the horrors of Jim Crow, things that everyone uh, should know and are often forgotten. And those certainly are some of the wounds that will not heal. But I also get the idea, reading about how wounding it is to the psychology of white applicants and Asian applicants, that perhaps he's also including those as wounds that will not heal. Well, we've had 40 years. We've had an experiment which, as I will say, has been an experiment for both sides' assertions, and I don't think it's really borne out either of them. Uh, let's <clears throat> talk first about the conservative predictions that tribalism would spin out of control if we did have racial preference. Uh, we've had it for 40 years. Tribalism has not spun out of control. Uh, race relations are, in my view, a whole lot better than they were in the 70s, tremendously better, immensely better. You may disagree, and yet I wonder whether anyone would argue that they actually are worse than they were in the 70s. Uh, on the other hand, we've had a controlled experiment in the opposite direction, in that the voters of a couple of large states have chosen to end preference. Have racial relations spun out of control in California or Michigan? Or if they have, uh, has it been in a way different from other states and somehow attributable to the different university policy? No, that hasn't happened either. So the predictions or expectations that society would begin flying apart without racial preferences don't seem, at least at this point in time, to be very well grounded either. We don't have a very good idea of what does cause racial tribalism to spiral out of control. But 
One of the points made uh, in uh, Professor Neely's book that I thought was very interesting was that these are selective institutions. Uh, you really notice this if you're applying to the Ivy League. You notice it if you're applying to law or medical school, which have one seat for every eight or 10 people trying to get into them. You don't notice it nearly so much if you're trying to go to ordinary institutions, uh, which take most of the people that they let in. And this raises the possibility that this issue, however intense the feelings it raises among those of us for whom admission to competitive institutions has been a very important part of our life, is not so important to the great majority of Americans who don't have that as part of their typical uh, life history. Let me pursue this a bit. There is no mass movement on this issue from either side. Uh, the, yes, the liberal foundations tried to kind of simulate a mass movement in favor of it, and it, it went away as soon as they got their Supreme Court opinion. Um, and, but there is no mass movement on the conservative side either. Um, it was never asked about in the presidential debate because there was no great constituency out there demanding that it be asked in the presidential debate. It's so fascinating to me. It was mentioned that the Democrats or the liberals, or call them what you will, treat their support for racial preferences as a kind of guilty secret that they uh, don't talk about very directly. And yet, you could say exactly the same thing of the Republican Party and its opposition. They also don't speak straight about this. They also treat their position as a guilty secret. Uh, and indeed, when Republicans in power are in power, they do nothing. Uh, it is well known that the president, with a stroke of the pen, could remove a lot of rever uh, reverse preference policies. Reagan did not do that, nor has any other Republican president. So, the null hypothesis may be that voters just don't care all that much. Uh, I would have assumed going into it that they did. But if you're going to ask who should care among voters, where would you look? Presumably, you would look at Asian American voters. Uh, <clears throat> almost every source agrees that they are the biggest losers per capita. Uh, what happened to the Asian American vote this fall? It went overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party. Uh, I do not think the Republicans could have changed that. Indeed, they might have made it even more lopsided had they tried to run a race on this issue. Uh, look to uh, other types of voters. Look in the communities where families are most likely to be worried about getting the thick packet or the thin packet from the Ivy League or somewhere. Uh, look at the affluent Chicago suburbs or the affluent New York suburbs or uh, the affluent Washington DC or LA suburbs. Because let's face it, overwhelmingly of all races, it's in those places that people are most likely to be facing that bottleneck. Uh, did those places vote for the Republican Party? Uh, did they care enough about this issue to, uh, to, to raise it? They did not. Everyone has decided not to directly politicize it, which may be wise, and instead to kick it over to the law side. And that is what we've been angling over for these past couple of decades. Uh, the Supreme Court has moved the ball a few yards <coughs> in one direction, a few yards in the other. Uh, the scholarship that has emerged, uh, certainly on the pro-racial uh, preferences side, and I assume some on the anti-side too, has been scholarship not so much aimed at a general intelligent public, but aimed at individual justices. We actually know which justices, particularly law review articles, were. You know, it's it, it's it's so sultan-like somehow. You know, you you bring in the the rugs and the dancing girls to persuade the one particular sultan who gets to decide your fate, uh, and it's not even the president; it's a Supreme Court justice. But <coughs> I think we're mistaken if we believe that we can avoid politicizing it by doing it that way. And I say that in part because the Sixth Circuit the other day struck down Michigan's uh, voter initiative 
uh, ending racial preferences. And it did so in a way that was widely noted. Every single Democratic appointee to the, Supreme, uh, to the Sixth Circuit uh, voted to strike it down. Every single Republican appointee to the Sixth Circuit voted to uphold what the Michigan voters had done. Uh, so politics winds up re-entering by the back door of a uh, politicized judiciary. We should not be happy or proud about that. Uh, let me close by talking about one possible libertarian uh, proposal for a truce in this particular culture war. And uh, it is not original to me. I think R Richard Epstein has proposed it. Uh, he has said, uh, <clears throat> let us indeed hold public institutions to the promises of the Constitution that the government must not discriminate. And yet there are so many and su such prestigious private institutions. Let us let the Ivy League uh, the many, many private institutions of the, of, of the other sort go on exactly as Derek Bach and the others would like them to do. Let them go on with reverse discrimination. And um, <clears throat> we would be living up as a nation to the promise of the Constitution, and yet we would be continuing the social experiment that is found so valuable by so many people of uh, a wider door, or at least a different type of admission for truly private institutions. Uh, I throw that out there knowing perfectly well that n neither side is especially interested in it politically. I'm not even sure it would be stable if we did adopt it. I just hope we can all think about it. Thanks. Great. <clears throat> Thanks a lot, Wally. Um, so now we go to the question and answer section. And uh, I would uh, make a few statements beforehand. Please wait to be called on by me. Wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and our audience that's watching online can hear the question. And please uh, announce your name and if you like your affiliation also. And I would add to this, uh, please make sure your answer is in the form of a question. Uh, the gentleman in the middle here. Hi, my name is uh, Steve Hankin. Um, my question is really a legal question. Uh, this rationale that is used... Excuse me, is the mic on? Hello? Yeah, you oh. just have to hold it closer to your mouth. Okay. Um, my question is a legal question. More, um, This... this uh, rationale of diversity that, that has been applied, which is pretty disingenuous as you, as you pointed out. But what I don't understand is what kind of facts were presented to the court to establish that diversity achieved anything um, and that there's so many forms of diversity other than racial diversity that I suspect could be probably, if you're gonna, if, if you could prove it, would probably contribute more to the diversity of the class. Why, why was it, like my question is, why was this able to get through the Supreme Court with what I think was hardly any real proof, uh, factual proof of what that, of whether diversity actually uh, achieved what they wanted to here. Let me talk about Bakke first. Go we go. Okay. All right, let me talk about the Bakke decision. Okay, the Bakke decision had to do with um, a, uh, a, a very rigid kind of quota system at uh, uh, the medical school at the uh, University of California at uh, Davis, okay? And um, the Supreme Court, uh, Bakke, Alan Bakke, uh, was a... Um, 
uh, an applicant uh, who had done extremely well uh, on uh, his uh, medical uh, uh, achievement uh, test, M the MCATs, medical, what is it, medical college achievement test, whatever it is, the, the tests are taken into medical school. And uh, he just missed uh, getting in, uh, even though they had a, a, a set aside where a certain portion of the 100 uh, seats at the University of uh, uh, California um, uh, Davis Medical School were reserved uh, for what they call special admits, which were mainly uh, Latinos and blacks. And I think even at that time, I think Asians qualified. They, they, they did very well after that, and, and they didn't uh, extend uh, any kind of uh, special admission preferences. But anyway, uh, Justice Powell uh, said uh, that uh, universities are to be places uh, where people share ideas, and uh, he said, um, that uh, he, he expanded, he didn't, he didn't say uh, that the only kind of diversity that could legitimately qualify for uh, various kinds of uh, special consideration or racial diversities. In fact, he, he went out of his way not to say that. He, uh, he said there could be uh, you know, diversities of, uh, of, of, of different uh, kinds, and he didn't even say that they had to be uh, black and Latinos. He even said uh, Italians. Uh, which is my own ethnic group, uh, could uh, sometimes qualify for uh, special uh, consideration. But universities basically took that to mean that they were going to continue with the, the programs that they had uh, always had, and they came to interpret diversity essentially in terms of racial diversity, and racial diversity particularly, first and foremost, blacks, secondarily then uh, Latinos. Now, if you ask, well, uh, couldn't, aren't there many other underrepresented groups that could enhance uh, the uh, diversity and, and ed enhance the intellectual atmosphere? Uh, how about a few libertarians? Uh, wouldn't that uh, enhance uh, the diversity at, at schools? Uh, how about uh, people who served in the military? I asked a couple of years ago in a, a group I was uh, teaching, um, about a, this was a discussion group, about 10 Princeton students. I said, how many of you here, these are undergraduates, how many of you undergraduates here at Princeton have ever met a, an undergraduate student who served a year or more uh, in the military, military service? Uh, I got one hand. Uh, this girl said she knew uh, someone who had served in the Israeli military. Uh, and I asked again uh, sometime later to another group, even a larger group, uh, how many of you have ever met an undergraduate here at Princeton who has served a year or more on active military uh, duty? Again, I got one hand. This particular student knew someone who had served in the Turkish military. Uh, the universities, for the most part, certainly the universities that I'm familiar with, the, the Ivy League schools, aren't terribly interested in, in, in having people who serve in the military. They're not interested in, in, in you know, how many born-again Christians from the Bible Belt, uh, uh, how many people grow up in farms and ranches. All these people could uh, enhance uh, diversity, but when they say diversity, they mean, as I say, first and foremost, you better have a certain minimally decent percentage of Africa, or uh, they don't have to be African-Americans, they, they can pass for African-Americans, they could be Afro-Caribbeans, that's another question. Uh, and the I Ivy League schools, uh, a very large portion of the blacks are not Afro-Americans, they're Afro-Caribbeans or Africans. Uh, uh, one study showed about 40%, I would estimate at Princeton it's more like about 50%, 50% of the black students in my, my estimate, my very rough estimates, uh, are probably have parents or grandparents who were born in the Caribbean or born uh, outside. So here the compensatory justice argument doesn't, doesn't work at all. Uh, but the, to answer your question is, yeah, sure, there, there would be uh, a lot of contributions that uh, people uh, could uh, uh, make to uh, diversity uh, that, aren't, that isn't simply racial diversity, but uh, that's not what the universities generally think of when they say we're, we're, we're dedicated to diversity. They usually, they mean racial, racial diversity. And 
they, they're very sensitive to criticism from uh, outside, and particularly they, they suffer from what I call R-word dread. They don't, they don't want to be called racist or, or, or prejudiced, and they're so sensitive to that charge that uh, it becomes uppermost in their mind to have a certain, what they consider minimal percentage of, uh, certainly of, 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 of black students uh, and, and less, somewhat less concerned with, uh, with Latinos. accepted it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, okay. Okay. okay, let's continue with the answer. Yeah. There's, um, there's an interesting passage in uh, Wounds That Will Not Heal about the court's acceptance of that argument, which uh, as Professor Neely points out had not been one of the major arguments for uh, reverse preference until it was suddenly discovered that there was a market on the Supreme Court for that particular argument, after which a literature sprang up attempting to prove it. Now. Um, we get into the psychologies of individual justices uh, on the, the Supreme Court, and if I'm rem remembering my history correctly, Justice Powell was the one who really believed that educational institutions um, knew best how to run their own things and was therefore very susceptible to proffers of expert testimony saying, oh, well, this is all, uh, you know, the, uh, um, educational research has discovered that it's easier to run a college or university in particular ways. Well, who are we as judges who are not specialists to uh, 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 second guess what the universities themselves believe? Now, for later decisions, there's the question of why they would not reconsider um, uh, the, the issue, and uh, you know, it, your guess is as good as mine, since uh, it doesn't, at, at least to judge from, from the, the evidence in this book, it doesn't tem tend, seem to be terribly good evidence. But having accepted it once, perhaps the Supreme Court just felt that it didn't want to revisit uh, the, something that it had, had bought with, uh, uh, with its initial appearance at the court. <clears throat> I believe the lady in the front row wanted to quit. Uh, my name is Cherie Moody. Thank you, Dr. Neely, for taking my question. Um, you said that uh, racial preference policy causes stereotypes to persist, uh, particularly in the academic uh, realm. But uh, you, uh, my question is, um, there are institutions that have been created that um, makes this kind of um, uh, practice important. Uh, uh, this summer I studied in Brussels and I studied the common agriculture policy and um, I studied the origin of the common agriculture policy and, and uh, it was designed to uh, help the European economy or this agriculture sector to um, rebuild after the Second World War. Um, but the, the most significant thing that I learned about the common agriculture policy is that it made it so that um, um, economies uh, in Africa, uh, Caribbean countries, and South America were, were disadvantaged um, uh, for their market's sake, uh, for the European market's sake. So we, this kind of sentiment is not isolated to Europe. It, uh, of course, it comes, it has come here as well. So we have, um, we have institutions that have, I, I can't even believe that I saw it. It, it, it was designed to disadvantage certain groups, particularly minority groups. Um, so you have, you have these institutions or these, uh, these policies that have been put in place because of things like this. You know, but you don't, you, I, w I would like to hear more from you about 
uh, okay, so we're talking about policy, but what about these the bigger the bigger picture, the institutions that make it so these things are necessary, so that some some of us that ha that uh, would be disadvantaged by this will have a chance. Can you speak to me more on that, please? Thank yeah, if if I think I understand uh, the question, you're saying, well, aren't there institutions that have disadvantaged uh, members of certain minority groups, and wouldn't it be good to give those people? Previously disadvantaged, um, you know, some leg leg up in 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 uh, virtue of the fact that they uh, have been disadvantaged uh, before. And I said this is a kind of a reparations or, or compensatory justice argument. The problem is, though, um, affirmative action programs aren't means tested. They don't say, "Are you poor? Uh, were you discriminated against in the past? Uh, you know, uh, is is, uh, is there a, a social uh, uh, debt that has to be uh, met uh, uh, here?" And uh, one way I've, I've described it is this. I think racial preference policies as they exist, at least in the universities, are basically policies that were brought about at the behest of the black and Latino middle class that successfully used the sympathy, the pity, and the guilt that strategically placed whites have over the condition of the black underclass in order to further their own middle class uh, interests and middle class lives. They are not, they are not policies that are aimed at rectifying past injustices to people who are currently disadvantaged. Uh, they, they often uh, are, are people who uh, are very much uh, uh, in, in the, upper, uh, the upper middle class. I think was it, somebody did a study, of the, what was it, a Peter Arcia Cano at uh, Duke uh, of different uh, groups. And he, he did find that uh, the uh, whites had, uh, the family income of the whites was, was higher uh, than the blacks, uh, but uh, the, the black family income of the students, the black students at Duke, uh, was over $100,000, okay? Uh, not, not exactly people that you would consider uh, to be uh, uh, poor. And what I argue here is that it's detracted from uh, any uh, public goodwill to help the kind of truly disadvantaged people who can legitimately claim that they're victims of past uh, oppression. And that's why that's the, the final uh, chapter, uh, in many ways, that's the most moving chapter when you say, when I, I, I try to explain just um, what a, uh, a, a, uh, a terror state the Jim Crow order was and how it largely explains the difficulties so many uh, people uh, who went through the Jim Crow experience have had in trying to adjust to the uh, the the, uh, the promises and rewards of, of, of American society. And I think what racial preference policy has done, it's, it's kind of served as a, we, we gave it the office uh, a kind of, uh, of thing. We, we've given blacks what uh, they, they deserve because of their past mistreatment in the form of, of, of affirmative action, and uh, our, our social debt to them is, uh, is discharged. And, and I, I say uh, no. Uh, I, I, I do think we need uh, uh, to focus on uh, the truly disadvantaged and uh, not on giving privilege to people who already have, who already have privilege. So uh, I, I'm not entirely out of uh, sympathy for what you say about people who have been previously uh, harmed uh, through uh, government policies like those in the Jim Crow South, and some of the things, you read the last chapters, some of the things that went on in the Jim Crow South are just hair-raising. One of the things, when I started studying the Jim Crow uh, uh, order, 
Uh, I figured, well, I'm sure things were pretty bad for black people back then, but it's probably been exaggerated. After all, it's in the interest of black people to exaggerate their past oppression. To my surprise, I found out, if anything, it's been understated. I mean, the Jim Crow South was one real white terror state. If you were black, it was pretty dangerous to be, in, in particularly in, in the, lower, the lower South. Uh, I can't help but uh, also say that uh, the common agricultural policy is quite a bad thing, and we'd be happy here at Cato to get rid of the mountains of butter, the lakes of wine, and the damage done to poor people in the world by such a policy. Uh, I think we had this gentleman here, and we'll work our way back, and everyone will get a chance to ask. And please hold it close to your mouth. Apparently, there's a, a bit of a problem with the microphone. Okay, I'm Roger Clegg with the Center for Equal Opportunity and a, a great fan of both uh, Mr. Neely and Mr. Olson. I have a very brief comment and then a, a question. Uh, brief comment is that, uh, Walter, the problem with the public-private distinction and with allowing private discrimination generally is that unless you are willing to allow African Americans to be discriminated against legally, uh, what you're proposing is a legal regime that literally denies the equal protection of the laws. Uh, that is, you're, you're allowing some racial groups to be discriminated against, but not others. Um, my question for both panelists is whether the fact that America is becoming dramatically more multi-ethnic and multi-racial makes the problems uh, of uh, balkanization greater now than they were when uh, affirmative action was first adopted and whether that adds some uh, immediacy to the need for the Supreme Court to put an end to it. Well, um, there are certainly interesting things afoot on the um, extension of uh, uh, preference to uh, groups beyond uh, blacks and Hispanics. Uh, I find it hard to evaluate what immigration from other ethnic groups is doing in that the uh, attempts a few years back to, to start up Arab-American uh, quotas seem to have fizzled and um, the um, uh, growth of the multiracial uh, cat categorization seems also to have set back the um, plans for further, uh, you know, Bosnianization of uh, the American public. In that, if you can't categorize people properly and uh, it, uh, it, you can't fit them into the boxes, at the same time. Um, that these parade of horrors are not happening in the racial area. They show somewhat more sign of happening in other non-racial areas. Um, uh, France and Norway have introduced uh, very serious gender quotas for um, uh, corporate and, and uh, political uh, types of offices, which will at some point probably get proposed here. Uh, uh, Senator Feinstein of California sent out a trial balloon a few years ago. They didn't work. But um, the federal government is on the verge of setting up uh, hiring quotas for uh, disabled workers uh, for federal contractors, which is a very large group of companies. And although they may be able to cope with that to some extent simply by recategorizing as disabled people who have no idea currently that they're disabled, but will agree to check that box if the company asks them to, um, there, um, uh, there are more practical questions coming down the line from some of these other areas of preference and quotas uh, than necessarily from the racial one, as, as I see the practical. 
I'll, I'll just say uh, among uh, young people, people uh, I, I uh, listen to at uh, Princeton, they're very much aware of the fact that there's a lot more intermarriage now and a lot more multiracial people. So it, it kind of makes, you know, what do you, you have five boxes to check off, but, you know, if you don't fit into any of those boxes, you know, what do you do? And what, of course, what racial preference policy does, it encourages people uh, to check off the box that they're going to get uh, the most preference for. I had a student who was a part uh, Korean and uh, part uh, Puerto Rican. Now, uh, it was the Korean was his father, and the Puerto Rican was his mother. But he didn't, so he didn't have a Spanish last name, and he didn't speak Spanish at all, and he didn't identify anymore uh, with uh, the Spanish side of his family. But he says, "I always check off Spanish or Hispanic on Latino on those. I never check off Asian." He says on those little boxes because I know uh, I'm going to be harmed if uh, if if I do uh, if 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 I do that. So. Uh, I don't think it's very good uh, that you have a system that encourages people uh, to, uh, one, to sort of celebrate their, the past victimhood of their people and develop a victim-focused uh, identity, as uh, Shelby Steele uh, labels it, uh, and uh, two, especially if you have multiracial people, to ask them uh, or to make it in their interest to uh, become part of that uh, uh, victim-identified group. It's just not a good idea for social cohesion. Woman in the front row. My name is Agnes Powell, Mr. Neely, and I am 65 years old, and I, I was educated during segregation, and I remember the beginning of affirmative action, and I've sort of watched its um, existence from its beginning until now. And I think it's very disingenuous of you to attack affirmative action on the grounds that it uh, benefits middle-class minorities and doesn't uh, focus on lower-income minorities because when affirmative action uh, was, in, was instituted, middle-class minorities did not face um, open doors. Middle-class minorities uh, weren't hired, weren't um, um, accepted into other than minority schools. All African Americans were discriminated against. It didn't matter what your income was. It didn't matter how brilliant you were. It was based entirely on skin color, and that was legal segregation. It was based on skin color. That's what affirmative action was intended to correct, not lower income disadvantage, racial disadvantage, because that's what had been in effect in this country since its beginning. Okay, uh, there's an important distinction to be made uh, here between anti-discrimination law and racial preferences or affirmative action. The word affirmative action is just such a, you know, a mealy-mouthed, it can mean almost anything, but uh, you're absolutely right. There was discrimination, and that's why laws were passed uh, against uh, uh, against discrimination, and, and uh, presidential uh, executive orders were issued. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, most important executive order, one, uh, one, two, uh, four, six. Here, let me just read. This was this, this was Lyndon Johnson's executive order, in 1965, addressing just the problems that you're talking about. That black people, whether they're rich or poor, were often excluded from various uh, uh, jobs and, and, and positions, certainly in in, in private uh, uh, industry, if not uh, in government. Uh, it says, it is the policy of the government of the United States to provide equal opportunity in federal employment for all qualified persons and to prohibit discrimination in employment because of race, creed, color, or national or or origin. No, no, no mention there of, of being poor or middle class. Okay, then he says, uh, here it says, the, uh, the Secretary of Labor shall be responsible for administering this. He says, and in uh, hereafter, 
all uh, agencies that uh, contract with the federal government have to post this uh, message. Quote, the contractor will not discriminate against any employee or applicant for employment because of race, creed, color, or national origin. Doesn't say just for rich people or poor people. Then it goes on. The contractor will take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. Now, that's what he called non-discrimination, and that's what most people support, and that's what I support. But without preference or without discrimination was trans uh, uh, formed into with discrimination or with uh, uh, a, uh, a preference in the affirmative action era. And there was the, the colorblind ideal reflected in the 1964 Civil Rights Act in President Johnson's executive order in 1965, that that was radically transformed in the early 1970s uh, from a colorblind imperative <coughs> where people are treated without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin to a racial preference in, uh, imperative where they are treated with regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. So. That, that's the, the distinction there. I, I like the idea of non-discrimination, of colorblindness, of being treated without regard to race, creed, color, and national origin. But that's not how racial preference policies or affirmative action policies uh, work, certainly at the universities, which I'm most uh, uh, familiar with. It makes a big difference which one of those little boxes, uh, you know, uh, black, Hispanic, white, Asian, which one you, you, you check off. And um, what, when I talked about the beneficiaries of being generally middle class, certainly in the elite universities that I'm most familiar with, the overwhelming majority of the, the, the black students that are uh, there uh, do not, do not come from lower socioeconomic uh, circumstances. And those people have been forgotten. Who thinks about those? There was a time when people were concerned about you know, the inner cities and uh, the problem of the underclass and so on. I haven't heard any of that for the last 20 years. And I think a, a large part of that is because uh, racial preference policy uh, has for many people thought, well, you know, we, we, we've done what has to be done uh, with uh, uh, the African-American people. They've gotten their reparations. They've gotten uh, uh, their uh, compensation for past mistreatment in the form. I, I, could you wait until you get to the microphone so you can make your comment? Um, no, give her the microphone so everyone can hear what she's saying. Uh, you mentioned about the veterans uh, had, you named, they, they was re uh, preference, and then you said, then you switched and said, why, why, why weren't the veterans embarrassed about getting veterans preference? Well, some of them might not, I don't even have to ask them. They, they, it wasn't in, uh, in um, university admissions, it was uh, for jobs in the government. It was just for, for jobs. So why in, weren't they embarrassed about Well, maybe some of them, some of them would be. I don't know, you'd have to, you'd have to ask them. They got housing preferences, they got loan preferences. But, uh, why embarrassed, weren't they embarrassed about that? Uh, embarrassed, I'm not saying that black students are necessarily embarrassed to get uh, uh, affirmative action preferences, but I do think that there is a sense they don't have the same sense of achievement. Why weren't the veterans? I'm asking you, why weren't the veterans embarrassed about? Well, I, I, if if you did give them preferences at university, competitive university, to the same extent that African Americans uh, are uh, are given, I think they would be. They would have been. They they they, they weren't given the. the but they the, were given preferences at universities too. 
Well, no, they were only given, I think, to my knowledge, only given preferences in, in terms of uh, funding. They came under the GI Bill of Rights, so yeah. they got... Why they, weren't they embarrassed? Well, why would they be embarrassed to get uh, money for it? If you get a scholarship for, you know, your, your past efforts in, in, in defending your, your country, it's different if you get preferences to a competitive university and the vast majority of students uh, are just smarter than you are or they, they've achieved higher than you are or uh, they're just academically... Before 1965, you could have a million A's if you were black. You could have a million... Uh, I mean, my parents, everybody in, before 1965, but there were only two blacks allowed at Barnard. There were only two blacks, and Princeton was the worst of all. Right. So I'm saying to you, before 1965, you could have a million degrees, a million kind of preferences. So I don't understand why you're un not understanding that the veterans were white. That's why they didn't, they weren't embarrassed. You're trying to embarrass us because one little teeny thing is in our uh, uh, preference. I don't understand that. I don't know how you can sleep with that. I don't know how you can sleep. Well, let, let, let me quote, I said Tom, let me quote Tom Sowell. Tom Sowell is saying, well, okay, well, let me, well, I'll, 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 I'll let you, I'll let you, I'll let you, because I've quoted this before. I've quoted this, I've quoted this before between a black audience yeah, and I, I found a great deal of, uh, of resonance. I have black people who agree. Let's listen to what Tom Sowell said. This, this is way back uh, in the early 70s. In his book, Black Education, Myths and Tragedies. He says, the actual harm done by quotas is far greater than having a few incompetent people here and there. And the harm that will actually be done will be harm primarily to the black population. What all the arguments and campaigns for quotas are really saying, loud and clear, is that black people just don't have it, and they will have to be given something in order to have something. He goes on, the devastating impact of this message on black people, particularly black young people, will outweigh any few extra jobs that may be result from the strategy. Those black people who are already competent and who could be instrumental in producing more competence among this rising generation will be completely undermined as black becomes synonymous in the minds of blacks and whites alike with incompetence and black achievement becomes synonymous with charity and payoffs. Now, I might say Sowell. Sowell was a graduate of Harvard University in pre-affirmative action days, a magna cum laude graduate of Harvard pre-affirmative action days. People say, wow. One of us can make it. Look at that. They didn't have, at, at that time, some special uh, preference uh, policies. And those people could serve as, uh, as role models, I think, for, uh, for the uh, youth. I think that affirmative action has lulled the black middle class into indifference in the face of continuing poor performance, not simply of the black underclass, but of the black middle class. If you go to any suburban high school, any upper middle class high school, Shaker Heights, uh, the Chapel Hill, North Carolina, you look at upper middle class blacks, look and see how they do in, in comparison to whites and Asians, and they almost always do much, much, much poorer in terms of anything you want to measure, whether it's their uh, scores they get on the AP exams, the, the grade point average, whether it's their SAT. Uh, scores. The black middle class has been lulled into indifference by affirmative action. That's well, my claim. Wally? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> let me lodge a dissent on that uh, set of points having to do with the supposed distraction or uh, people won't care about uh, poor people who are never headed to university because there is this very separate program that deals with people who are headed to the university. Um, I think people's minds are big enough to take you know, two substantial problems in uh, at a time without one of them bumping the other one off. And in, in, in general, the people that I um, know who have tried to th think 
at length about university admission policies are not uncaring about the very different problems of the poorest uh, city residents. They often have thought very deeply about those too. Uh, indeed, we know some of the same people um, uh, Stephen Abbey Thurnstrom and others uh, who have spent a great deal of their career on, on both. Uh, with university presidents, I think the answer is simpler, which is that they feel they can do something about the issue of who goes to college. They realize that, in general, they cannot do anything about the problems of uh, poor urban neighborhoods. So they think more about the first problem than about the second. I was thinking more of the public at large than specifically uh, university administrators. The public at large, white people, basically white middle-class people are thinking... We've, we've, met our, we've discharged our debt to black people by affirmative action. And I'm saying that I don't think that's the case. I'm saying that affirmative action, at least in universities, to the extent that it's helped people, it has tended to help uh, the, uh, the middle, uh, middle class blacks. Uh, and um, it, it, it has taken uh, a, a great toll on uh, public racial goodwill. Let's get on to some other questions here. The gentleman that was waiting before. Jim Lowen, I'm the author of Sundown Towns, among other books. Uh, I think you have a rosy view of the North. Uh, you talk about Jim Crow in the South. Uh, that book I just mentioned shows that 70% of all the towns in Illinois flatly kept out black people as recently as 1970. Many of them still do. Entire counties still do. Uh, and this is not just an Illinois problem. I just picked that state at random. It's a northern problem, however. It's very rare in the South. Uh, I just want to mention that when I went to Carleton College, um, I, one of my classmates was the fifth black person ever to go to that college, and I was in its centennial year. Okay, you can work that out, how many that is. That's one person every 20 years. And that's because they did business as usual. Now, they went for all kinds of diversity, geographic diversity, and they said so in their applications, uh, diversity of interests, whether you were in the um, choir, had other musical interests, et cetera, et cetera. But race was completely left out. So I've got some uh, background similar from the other side of the fence from the, the two black folks who just spoke. And I, I'd said that did actually affect us, that is, us being the white folks at Carleton College. We did have a lack of diversity. I even took a course on the effect of the Civil War, 1863-1963, that didn't have a single black student and it didn't have a single black professor ever to address it. And the Civil War did have something to do with black people, you know? So this was an inadequacy in white education. So I think that the argument that you have put back, uh, that, that diversity is just to be poo-pooed, maybe needs to be unpoo-pooed. And I also think that affirmative action is an acceptable uh, term, maybe, since we were doing things in the pre prior to it that were the opposite of affirmative. Thank you. Let me uh, just uh, say something about, uh, you know, the, the, you said there were lack of black students in the, in the institution that you attended. The number of black students attending college is, is relatively fixed. It's one school getting black students uh, and taking them from another school. It's not, you're not increasing the number of black students in the college system. You're reshuffling them upward. That's what you're doing. And one school's diversity gain is another school's diversity loss. And you are creating this mismatching. You are creating uh, this uh, upward ratcheting whereby you guarantee that black students at the more competitive schools are not going to be academically 
as qualified as the whites and Asians. They're, they are going to be, and, and the whites and Asians, of course, are going to notice this. So when you read stories and they say, well, you know, uh, they didn't want me as a lab partner or they didn't want me as a study group uh, member. Black uh, students will often uh, complain. Well, the idea, the reason for that is, is because you have differential uh, admission standards and there's just no way to get uh, around, uh, around this. I do agree that other things being equal, diversity is a good thing, including racial diversity. I couldn't agree with you more about, uh, about that. When I went to Duke University, I went to Duke University in the window period uh, when um, they, they just accepted black students a few years earlier. Duke being a southern school, they didn't allow blacks in until the early 1960s. I got there sort of the, the middle 1960s. Uh, and there was only about, I think, about 3% black students. But I, I, I knew them. I knew some of them. And they had to make it under the same standards everybody else did. They didn't have affirmative action until the early uh, 70s here. Now, would it have been better instead of having 3% black students who were equally qualified to the average Duke student? They had had uh, 9 or 10, uh, but uh, the majority of them were, were substantially less, uh, less qualified. And instead of going to, let's say, the University of North Carolina, uh, those, those students wound up at Duke. I, I don't think my experience would have been better. It would have been just the opposite. I would have come to identify uh, the black students that uh, I knew is uh, academically uh, not uh, sufficiently qualified uh, for the institution. And I think that what that leads to is self-segregation. Go to any elite university, look at the cafeteria, see, see where the black students are sitting, see how, see how many white and Asian students they're sitting next to. If they are sitting next to white and Asian students, the chances are that they have met on a, either on a, uh, a football team or, or some other uh, athletic uh, team where they have a strict merit system, where they don't have any affirmative action, you know, for Asians on the football team. Everybody makes it under the same, uh, the, 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 the same criteria uh, on the sports team or some other extracurricular activity. But this idea that you can just throw people uh, together uh, who uh, are, are not only have different backgrounds, but they have uh, different levels of academic achievement. And somehow this contact is going to be mutually enriching is just, just wrong. I go over in my book a lot of what they call the contact hypothesis. There's been a great deal of research on this uh, since uh, the 1940s, uh, really. And there's really no controversy on this. Uh, the question was, when does contact between people of different races and, and, and religions and ethnicities, and particularly people who have had in the past uh, hostile relationships, uh, prejudicial relations, when are those uh, prejudices uh, uh, diminished, okay? The most important book that came out in the 50s was by a Harvard uh, researcher, Gordon uh, Allport, and he said, well, under certain circumstances, contact uh, can reduce uh, prejudice and discrimination, but on other, uh, others it don't. And a major uh, criteria for having a contact that reduces prejudice, he says, is that you have to have people of equal status and you have to have cases, a substantial number of cases that counteract the negative stereotype, okay? There were no people who had more, con no white people who had more contact with black people than those in the Mississippi Delta and other areas of the Deep South, and there were no people who were more prejudiced against them because they met them as maids, as janitors, as shoeshine boys, as prison release laborers. You have to, to have prejudices uh, diminished or uh, uh, eliminated, you have to meet people of equal status, or prefer preferably, uh, as Allport says, of superior status. So if you have you know, a black doctor uh, and a black lawyer uh, in your blue-collar town, that, that's going to reduce prejudice. People aren't going to identify, white people aren't going to identify black people with uh, janitors and uh, shoeshine boys. 
but if you have a university system and an upward ratcheting system like we have today, uh, where it guarantees that the typical black student uh, at an elite college is, is going to be intellectually or academically inferior to the, the typical Asian student or the typical white student, how is that going to reduce prejudice? It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, any more? Well, I don't need to. Okay. Our time has run out. So uh, our book today has been Wounds That Will Not Heal, Affirmative Action and Our Continuing Racial Divide by Russ Neely. I would now like to invite everyone uh, to go upstairs to, for lunch. Uh, the lunch will be held on the second level of Cato at the George M. Yeager right. Conference Center up the spiral staircase. Restrooms are on the second floor on your way to lunch. Look for the yellow wall and join me in thanking our discussants today. <laughs>